Amen. Hey, good morning. I'm Jason, and I want to echo Leslie's welcome. Uh, Leslie, thanks for welcoming us, by the way. Uh, I'm so glad that you are here. And if you're new here, this is actually a really good time to be new at South and City Church because what we're talking about this month will give you a pretty clear picture of what we're aiming for. Uh, not that we always hit what I'm about to describe, but we're certainly aiming for it. And what I'm talking about is our mantras. So as a community, we have four mantras. If you've been around for a little bit, you've probably heard them thrown around a little bit. I'm going to unpack them uh, as we move forward here. Uh, but these mantras evolved uh, early in the life of our church because not too long ago, I told the world, in a sense, that I was going to do something like this. And the first questions started coming in, like, what's it going to be like? And if you listen to the questions that come in, you discover that what people are really asking about is like stylistically what it's going to be like, or what's the music going to be like, or where exactly is it going to be, or what's the room going to feel like? And those are all understandable questions. Uh, but when you're getting a, a new thing going on and you, you dream of a new family coming together, the first thing you dream about may not be the color of the curtains, right? There might be some more fundamental things that you dream about when you imagine a community being formed. And so it seemed really important that we would develop some language to describe the fundamentals, the, the deep impulses that would shape this community. And so these mantras came about as a way of describing what we felt called to as a church. They come about as a way of describing how we would follow Christ together in the year 2019 now, right? Although this was just a couple of years ago that these first came out. So these mantras um, began as a way of describing this community, uh, but they also became along the way portable prayers. Uh, which is really what a mantra is, right? A mantra is a portable prayer or a meditation or a, a really simple phrase that you could actually even have on your lips as you move through your day that helps you stay centered and remembering what you're all about. Uh, so we're going to get into these, which if you're new here, it's a great chance for you to find out what we're aiming for. And you might think, ah, no thanks, that, that's okay. Or you might think, yeah, this, this is something I want to be a part of creating, uh, a part of giving my heart to, and this is a good chance to evaluate that. So we're going to talk about our four mantras again this month. We're going to revisit them, uh, but if you've already heard them, don't worry. We're going to renew them, refresh them. We're going to take stock a little bit of where we are and where we're headed. So there'll be some fresh angles for you as we return to the mantras this year. Uh, before we get to the mantras, though, I wonder if anybody's doing the new year, new me thing. Anybody got any resolutions? Uh, I thought I'd crowdsource this for a moment and just see if we could hear from each other, uh, just to check in, right? So uh, if, if you have a resolution in one of the categories I'm about to name, if you would, just make a little noise. Okay, just let us know you're here, right? Like, does anybody have a resolution around physical fitness working out? Couple of us, okay. All right, we got a few of you. That's good. 8:45. I kind of thought this would be the you're the go-getters. I thought you'd be the ones who are going to be jogging at 5 a.m. this morning or something like that. Anybody have a dietary resolution this year? A few? Okay. Yeah, I got, I've got a, a a housemate right now who's doing Whole 30, which means he's really lame right now. Sorry, Dalton. Um, anybody have a financial resolution this year? Couple, okay, all right. Uh, anybody have uh, a reading or learning resolution this year? Yeah, a few of those, okay. Maybe you're gonna read a number of books this year or try to tap into some new experiences. Excellent. Now, I don't know about you, uh, I've got a couple of um, goals for the year, some things that I'm aiming at, but I have noticed in my own life that when I approach the resolution thing and I think about getting better, which is usually part of the drive for a resolution, right? How can I get better this year? I've noticed in my life, getting better almost always translates into doing more. Have you noticed that? That seems to be the first place that my ideas go when I think about getting better. So I'm gonna add things to my calendar, I'm gonna add things to my patterns, I'm gonna add things to my daily routine, I'm gonna add time at the gym, I'm gonna add uh, reflection time, I'm gonna add more reading time, I'm gonna add more time connecting with the people I wanna connect with. And often in my life, 
uh, getting better starts to turn into just doing more. Maybe you relate to that. Now, the interesting thing is this isn't just a temptation for people. I've also observed that churches have the exact same temptation. Like organizations, communities, companies, corporations all tend to work in ways similar to persons. And we can sort of have a shared consciousness or a shared personality here. And we can be tempted by the same things that individuals are. So for example, I was working at a church uh, in a previous life before South Bend City Church. And we we're in a leadership team meeting one day. And this is a room where we often dream about being better as a community. And in that meeting, somebody has brought an idea to the table about a new program or a ministry that we're going to launch. And as we're dreaming about this ministry, as a team, we start deciding this should be the kind of thing that we would stand up in front of the church and say, everybody should do this. Like, everybody should get in on this thing. And then somebody had the intelligence to ask the room, wait a minute, what are all of the things that we've told everyone that everybody should do? And then we did a tally, and we thought just in the past couple of years, if you've been a part of our church and you listen to our leadership, describe the things that you should do if you're going to help us be better and if you're going to be better and if we're going to be what we're supposed to be as a church. And what we realized was if you'd been listening, you had heard us say that you should attend a weekend service once every week where you attend. So you show up at the building and you're in the, the big room with all the people and the music and the preaching. And you bring a friend, by the way, because that's really important so that we reach out. So you receive all of that. But then you better come back to another weekend service because don't just show up to receive it. You better show up to serve at it. So like show up in a kid's room or whatever. So now you're up to two trips to the campus every weekend. But the problem is you've also got a middle schooler and a high schooler. And the middle school and the high school programs meet at different times. And of course, the middle schooler doesn't drive. And this isn't in the days of Uber, because it's like four days ago. So we, uh, so we have middle schoolers that have to come to the building in the afternoon. But then your high schooler is a freshman, which means they don't drive yet. So then you got to come back to the building to get your high schooler to the high school program. But then, of course, you know, the real action doesn't happen in the big room. The real action happens in small, intimate communities. So you got to get into a group. And the group meets every week on a Wednesday night in somebody's home across town. But remember, we've got the midweek service, because the weekend service is kind of the, the starting point for people. But in the midweek, we go deeper, man. So we worship longer and we go deep into the scriptures. So you better come back for the midweek service. But let's not be one of those insular churches that just does all of our stuff on the campus, right? Because there's a whole world out there that needs to know they matter to God. And so you better show up at our city opportunity where you serve neighbors outside the church. And you should probably get on an airplane a couple times a year and go to some other place to make sure other people in the world know how much they matter to God. And pretty soon, like we added it up and it's like eight times a week. And that's before you've done any of the things in your everyday life that we would actually say God wants you to do. That's before you've asked any questions about your marriage and whether or how your marriage is a place to get better or a place to serve God or be awake to what God is doing. It's before we've asked anything about your job, your nine to five or whatever hours you work. It's before we've talked about your school as a place where you wake up to what God is calling you to, a place where you get better, before we've talked about the gym as a great place to get better and thank God that you have a body that's how you're going to move through the world and do something to steward it. It's before any of that even hits the radar. We are so tempted to decide that better is the same thing as more. And I actually think there are some profound reasons that happens. I think we have to confront some insecurities within us and some expectations around us if we're going to dismantle that thing. Now, it's not just now, it's interesting how often uh, sort of the heroic characters of Scripture have to face the same kind of temptation when they, when, they, when they show up on the scene and they want to do better, and they're tempted to add more. 
And I'm amazed at how often the decisive moment in the stories of these characters is when they reject that connection and have the clarity of mind and the courage of heart to say no to some things. So let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, there's a young man uh, whose story is told in the books of the Old Testament, like 1 Samuel. This young man is the young brother. He's the runt of the litter. And at this point in the young man's story, his brothers are off at war as members of the Israelite military, but he's not because he's the runt of the litter, and he was not deemed worthy for that kind of work. And so while his brothers are off there doing big, important work on behalf of their people, he's out there attending to the flocks, which is uh, very, very undignified work. Well, this little brother, the runt of the litter, gets sent one day to his brothers on the front lines of a standoff between the Israelite army and another army. And he's been sent to, to give food to his brothers. But when he gets there to give food to his brothers, he discovers that there's, there's an affront to the things that he values and believes in happening right in front of his eyes, and nobody's doing anything about it. So, uh, so this young man, this little brother, this runt of the litter, discovers that in this standoff between the Israelite army and this other army, the other army has sent their biggest, baddest warrior out to challenge the Israelite army, basically saying, rather than all of our people destroy each other, you just send your best champion out here to the center, and I will fight your best champion, and between the two of us, whoever wins, that will decide the victory between our people. And for, for a very long time, this champion from the other army has come out to the front line and taunted the Israelites and made fun of their uh, beliefs and mocked their God. And they're just sort of standing there, shaking in their boots, tolerating it. And that's the moment when this young man shows up. And this uh, sets off uh, a battle that's become quite famous in the history of telling the stories of Scripture. This is the story of David and Goliath. Now, a lot of you have probably heard the story of David and Goliath, but I wonder if you've realized that the turning point in David's story with him and Goliath is a moment when he has to say no to the things that everybody assumes he should add if he's going to fight the way they think he should fight. So David's there at the front lines, and he's saying, let me fight this guy. I want to take him on. And his brothers mock him, but eventually Saul, the king, hears about it and brings him to the front line and says, all right, we're going to let this little runt go out there and fight the big man. And we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel 17. Then King Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. Now, on one level, this makes complete sense. David's about to go fight this guy, and everybody around David knows you don't go fight without armor on. Just makes sense, right? But watch what happens next. I cannot go in these, David said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Now, I just think about the moment here and how vulnerable David has made himself if you evaluate this the way everybody would evaluate it. You don't go into battle without armor on. But David seems to know something about who he is or what he has, what skills he has, what, what he brings to the battle. He seems to know something about what he's there for that nobody else knows. He seems to have been able to confront whatever insecurities within him or expectations around him would send him into battle burdened with heavy armor that's not a good fit so that he can go into battle the way that he needs to. And so we read on and see that things go exactly the way you'd hope they'd go for him. 
The Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. He's a pretty boy, essentially. And he despised him. And he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The trash talk continues. Come here, he said, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, and reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David ran and stood over him, and he took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head with the sword. Uh, This is a story that a lot of us have heard, but I wonder how many of us have missed the decisive moment when David had the clarity of identity, a clear picture of who he was and what he brought to the battle and what he was there for to say no to the thing that everybody was trying to put on him, trying to wrap his life up in even with best intent. Presumably, they put the armor on him because they care about him, right? Now, David's not the only one in the scripture who has to um, make a decisive no to turn down something that might seem like the right thing for him to do if he will actually be who he is and take advantage of what he has and do what he's there for. So even Jesus, if you read uh, through the gospel stories, you'll actually discover that Jesus says no at moments that you and I might think he was supposed to say yes. So like in Mark 1, for example, right out of the gate in Mark's gospel, we read that Jesus is healing people. And as he's healing people, a mob grows. These are people who are desperate for healing. And it says that the sick and the demon-possessed were all there being healed by Jesus. But that Jesus slips out of that place through the cover of night or the early morning. He goes to be alone for a bit. And then his disciples come up to him and they say, hey, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Don't you realize there's all these people sick and demon-possessed who need you to heal them? And curiously, Jesus has no problem saying, I'm not adding that to my agenda now. We've got to go on to other places. I'm actually here for other things. It's kind of surprising. If Jesus is who you and I might expect him to be, you would think he's always supposed to say yes to whatever is in front of him when there's a need. Later, uh, in another gospel, in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 12, Uh, a brother comes up to Jesus and says, I want you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, this seems like an issue of economic justice. You have uh, a father who who is betrothed an inheritance to the kids, and you you would think that if there's an act of uh, fraud or greed or injustice happening between these two brothers, that Jesus is the kind of person who should do something about it. He should use the authority that he has as a rabbi who's being trusted by more and more people to do something about it. And yet Jesus sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, that's not what I'm here for. That's actually not what I've come to do. Now, um, these characters who find the clarity to say no, whether it's David who confronts the insecurities within him and the expectations around him to say no to the armor that they want him to wear into battle, 
or whether it's Jesus who uh, confronts the expectations around him uh, that would suggest that you ought to keep de uh, delivering on the demand that people have for what you are here for, right? It strikes me that these characters usually forge the clarity to say no. They, they find the courage to say no through difficult, obscure, challenging, hidden moments that don't really look that rewarding as they're going through them. Uh, for Jesus, for example, the last time we taught the mantra that I'm about to get to, we looked at a moment in the wilderness. Before he enters his ministry, Jesus spends time in a wilderness being tempted. And if you actually read the temptations that you find in what we call uh, Jesus in the wilderness or the temptation of Christ, you discover those temptations, they're, they're not um, temptations to do like really dark and depraved things. They're not temptations the way that you and I might think of temptations to do uh, like really, really broken things that hurt ourselves or other people. Rather, they seem to be the kind of temptations that come at all of us when we're a little unclear on who we are or what we have or what we're here for. I'll just leave that as a teaser. If you want to go back and listen to last year's teaching on this mantra, you'll hear more of what we had to say about that. But Jesus has a moment of obscurity. There's nobody there in the wilderness except for him and the tempter. And it's in that place of obscurity and difficulty that he forges some clarity about who he is and what he's here for. And David has the same experience when they ask David, how are you going to go at this giant on the field who's challenging us, pretty boy? Uh, this is earlier in the story of Samuel where we read this. David said to Saul, don't you know your servant has been keeping his father's sheep? Now, at that point, nobody's impressed, by the way. <laughs> nobody's like, oh, dang, you've been a shepherd? That doesn't help his case. But David's making the case that in obscurity and difficulty, doing things nobody cared about, that's where I actually found out who I am. He says, when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, I struck it, and I killed it. This is a very energetic shepherd. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, it's quite the trash talk, will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David is also a man who has discovered through obscurity and difficulty, through moments when nobody cares and nobody is paying attention, who he is and what he has in his hands and what he's here for. Uh, this gets us... Uh, closer to our mantra, but uh, to get all the way there, I want to remind you of a person I introduced you to uh, last year when we taught all of this. This is Jiro. Jiro the sushi man. Does anybody know who Jiro is? A few of you, right? Yeah, uh, people who know Jiro might have just paid very close attention to my preaching last year. Good job. But more likely, uh, Jiro is the subject of a relatively well-known documentary. You can find it on Netflix. It's called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And Jiro might be the world's most famous and renowned sushi man. Jiro's in Japan, and for 60-some years, he has operated one of the world's most renowned restaurants. It's a sushi shop in the basement of an office building in an obscure part of Tokyo that's earned three Michelin stars year after year. Three Michelin stars is Michelin's way of saying this is one of the greatest restaurants in the world. Michelin will tell you that when they give a restaurant three stars, they're saying it's worth an international flight just to enjoy the food. I don't know about you, that sounds nice. Uh, that seems to describe a budgetary reality which is different from my own, but they're saying you should travel across the world for the quality of this culinary experience. A city like Chicago might have one or two Michelin three-starred restaurants in the whole city, right? So Michelin three stars is a really big deal. Jiro's restaurant is a place that heads of state have traveled to. You can find pictures of 
kings and presidents sitting at his little sushi bar to eat his sushi. The sushi experience at Jiro's shop will last approximately 30 minutes and cost something like $300. If you're doing the math on the per minute cost, yeah, it's egregious, it's ridiculous. This is Jiro the sushi man. And I remember years ago, I watched his documentary and I was struck by so many things in it, but there was one big thing that just kept coming at me. And it was summed up in a line that's spoken at one point in the documentary, where one of the people describing sushi's work said that chefs will come from around the world, the world's best culinary minds, and they'll eat Jiro's sushi and they will ask one question. How can something so simple taste so deep? How can something so simple taste so deep? And that's the line that knocked me over when I was watching this. And I thought a little bit about Jiro's journey. So for decades, he's been a renowned sushi man. He's won the acclaim of everyone around him. And I wonder for Jiro, um, how, how likely it is that as he built this reputation for being incredible at what he did, I wonder how many insecurities he had to confront within himself and how many expectations raged around him about what he should do with what he has. So like organizationally, you have a world-renowned brand. Surely you should franchise this thing, right? Even aesthetically, let me show you the shop. This is the actual facade. That's it, right there. See the linoleum? See the fluorescent lights? Through that little gate is one little bar and a couple of tables, and you would walk down there and think, surely I have found the wrong place, right? That's the place that chefs and heads of state travel to from around the world. Surely aesthetically, along the way, people have come to Jiro and say, can we do something with this, right? Can you just imagine uh, the investors, the corporate dog whisperers, the people who would come along and say, there's more that we can do with this, right? Even culinarily, the very enterprise of sushi strikes me as an exercise in restraint. And what I mean by that is Jiro sends his fishmonger to the fish market every day, and they go look for the finest specimen. They go get the actual sort of these big tuna that have come out of the ocean, and when the fishmonger goes to that market, they cut little samples of the fish out. They use a flashlight to inspect the meat to see which is the best. And so they actually work on the, on the specimen of fish that they bring back to the shop. And you're Jiro, and you have this specimen of fish in front of you. And it strikes me that if better and more are the very same thing, then Jiro might be sitting there asking, what's the most I can do with this fish? And anybody asking, what's the most I can do with this, when they're looking at a piece of fish, might end up with something like fish stew, right? Like, what's the most I can do? How, how can I maximize the specimen that I have in front of me? So let's add a bunch of stuff to it. Let's stretch it. Let's see how far it can go. And it strikes me that in Jiro's enterprise, culinary, ask, culinary asking what's the most I can do with this is far different from asking what's the best I can do with this. And it seems that asking what's the best I can do with this has led Jiro for 60 years to simply make incredible beautiful, world-renowned sushi. And the culinary minds of the world come around him and they say, how can something so simple taste so deep? And this takes us uh, to the mantra that our community developed early on. It's a bit cheeky, 
Um, but hopefully it sticks in your mind a little bit. The mantra is simply this, sushi, not fish stew. Sushi, not fish stew. As a community, this mantra reminds us that what's the best we can do with who we are, what's the best we can do with what God has given us, what's the best we can do with the mission that we are here for, that question might lead us to different answers than asking, what's the most we can do? What's the most number of programs? What's the most that we can do with our brand, with our building, with our time, with our energy? And we want to stay fixed on what's the best we can do. We want to make sushi, not fish stew. So if you've been with us in our history, you might have seen this. Hopefully, you've seen this expressed in some of the decisions that we've made, some of the things that we've said yes to, or more importantly, some of the things that we've said no to. So like early on, we met for nine months on Wednesday nights at the Brick. And we built a bit of a family there at the Brick. And for nine months, we basically just did one simple thing again and again and again. We gathered together in a circle like this room here, and we opened the book of Acts, and we just asked ourselves page after page, what's a church? Next page, what's a church? Next page, what's a church? We did that for nine months, you guys. And I had a number of people along the way um, suggest to me it's time to do more. And it just seemed like, no, I'm not sure it is yet, because I think the best thing happening right now is the simplicity of a family being formed around a very simple question every week, what's a church? Uh, as we came out of that season and decided it was time to do a little more, we wanted to develop a, a really simple picture of our life together, which is why we talk about gatherings, tables, and streets. Streets is our word for the ways that we meet our neighbors on common ground for the common good. Tables, which you'll hear more about later this month, are simply a, a collection of people, just a few people that can fit around a table who actually share a meal twice a month and participate in some intentional conversation. Tables don't have curriculums. We don't slip a Bible study into tables. Tables are intentionally simple spaces. And then we have our gatherings, which is what you're sitting in right now, the kind of thing that happens on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning. And if it's not a gathering or a table or a street opportunity, we probably won't do it. Another way that we tried to live up to this is we actually took a long time to do anything for students. Not that we don't love students. We're passionate about students, but we wanted to make sure we didn't just throw a program at something until we understood how should we do it. Who is South Bend City Church? What does it look like for South Bend City Church to serve students in the way that we're supposed to? And then when we launched students, what we launched was student tables, which is the very same thing that adults do in the life of our community. So by the way, if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler, or if you know a middle schooler or a high schooler, please encourage them. Like, we'd love to invite them into our tables. Students can join tables at any point. You can go to tables on our website, and under the same heading where you find adult tables, you'll find student tables, middle school and high school. Uh, check that out, and you can use that tool to let us know that you'd like to be a part of that. But it took us a while to get to students, and when we got there, we didn't throw like a pep rally program for students. We just invited them into tables in the same way that we invite adults. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you walk into the room here, we've aimed for a visual simplicity in the space where we gather. So we have these screens, for example. And a, a lot of communities, and by the way, uh, when I talk about other communities and what they do, it's not critique, it's just differentiation, right? We, just, we are trying to be clear on who we are. A lot of spaces would say, hey, you know people come to church early? Well, I mean, not our church, but other people sometimes get to church early, right? And we got these TVs, like, let's, let's use them to, like, tell them what's going on. You know, you're going to sit in your seat a few minutes early. We could kind of hammer you with opportunities and serving opportunities and good news about what's happening. We could use this stuff, right? 
But we've intentionally said, you know what, people are getting hammered at all week long, visually, audibly, digitally, you just keep getting stuff thrown at you. What if you walked into this space and there was a noticeable absence of visual noise? So that's why we don't put stuff on the screens when you walk in. Sushi, not fish stew. That's actually a way of expressing this mantra. And then another way that's important, especially for 2019, is you might know our identity statement, a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. Well, from the beginning, we got working on community and grace and peace and city. But we really haven't done much with world. In fact, really, the only thing we've done with world is partner with World Vision, which we love and we're thrilled about. But we thought, you know, like, we don't have to get there overnight. And along the way in our early history as a church, there have been some moments where the suggestion has been made, well, we're a church, we should like be out there in the world, we should be doing missions, we should be doing that stuff. And we thought, yeah, but at the right time and in the right way, which is why 2019 is a year that we've set aside to begin to discern uh, the ways that we should partner or collaborate in places outside of South Bend. One of the reasons it took us this long is because we want to do sushi, which involves discernment, which involves some clarity about who we are and what we have and what we're here for. And we want to make sure that we bring that same clarity to the few things that we do outside of South Bend. Uh, this means for us as a church that we believe that not every opportunity is a calling. And we even believe that not every need is a calling. And that can be really hard to stay clear on. But here's how I know that not every need is a calling. Watch this. Are you ready? Here's how I know. Because the needs are infinite and we are not. Right? The needs are infinite, and we are not. So we're trying to bring a discerning lens uh, to the things that we say yes to and the things that we say no to as a church. Now, uh, I said at the beginning of this that these mantras aren't just for the community as a whole, but they've become a sort of portable prayer, and we want to help you make this portable. So I want to uh, get these cards handed out now. Uh, we've commissioned an artist named Scott Erickson to create an illustration for each of our mantras. And we want to send you home with this illustration today because you might want to put it in your wallet or tape it to your steering wheel or hang it on the fridge with a magnet or put it in your cubicle at work. And on the front, it simply has a, a, a little image of sushi. If you look closely, you might notice that the fish looks an awful lot like that early symbol of the Christian faith, uh, but it's embedded in a sushi roll. Isn't that nice? Uh, and then on the back, we have this simple summary. We're aiming for a beautiful, intentional simplicity in our life together. If we can stay clear on what's most important, we can leave the clutter behind. Uh, this is a gift to you, and we hope that it makes the mantra a little more of a gift to you. You'll get one of these every week this month uh, to go along with the mantra. By the way, uh, a little bit of information about what's around the corner. Scott Erickson, the artist who created the illustrations that we're sharing with the mantras. Scott's from Portland, Oregon. He's going to be here in the fifth week of this series. Let me put these dates on the screen for you. So Scott's going to be in our gatherings on February 7th and 10th. Scott's going to turn this big blank wall into a mantra wall. And the same artwork that we've got on the cards is going to fill that wall. It's either going to be a mural painted on the brick or some massive canvases. He's still working out the logistics on that. And Scott's going to be in our gatherings, and he and I are going to have a conversation together about the role of the visual in our spirituality, about the role of sacred images in our devotional life. I'm really excited about that. And then while Scott's here, Scott's also a performer, and Scott has a one-man show called Say Yes. A liturgy of not giving up on yourself. Uh, I've seen this in video form, and all the way through, I was thinking, this is exactly the kind of thing that our community 
would love. It's funny. It's witty. He talks about everything from mental health to dreams. And we're going to take it to the brick, our old stomping grounds. So don't miss that. It's on February 8th. It's a Friday night. Uh, we're going to open the doors in the bar at 7 p.m. And then at 7.30, the show is going to begin. You can grab a, be a beer or a snack ahead of time. We'll do the show, and then we have the bar till 11, so we can hang out like in the old days. Uh, so don't miss February 8th. And by the way, uh, kind of unrelated, but while I'm talking about guest speakers, I want to put one other guest on your calendar right now. At the end of February, in another series, a woman named Lisa Sharon Harper is going to join us. Uh, Lisa is an activist and a community educator who helps people and churches and organizations organize for the common good. Lisa's written a book called The Very Good Gospel that I and a number of other people in our community have found profoundly helpful when we ask ourselves, how is the gospel actually good news for a world where there's injustice and oppression? And she's going to uh, teach us in our gatherings. And she's also going to offer a workshop on Saturday, March 2nd. Uh, details will be forthcoming, but we'd love to invite you to all of that. That's a little bit around the corner. Um, as we wrap this up, let me just point out that like, if your calendar is cluttered, if you said yes to too many things, if you have too much junk in your home, and if it's possible that some of that comes from us struggling to know who we are and what we have and what we're here for. If we're not unlike David, except we've taken on some things that other people have put on us that we didn't really need. Well, I want to suggest that when the questions are, who are you and what do you have and what are you here for? Those are actually profoundly spiritual questions. They get to the deepest parts of who we are and the lives that we want to live. And so sushi, not fish stew might sound a little cheeky, um, but it's meant to name something deep and profoundly important for us. If you're struggling with who you are, or what you have, or what you're here for, next week's mantra is meant to address that. So I would say, come back, let's keep working this out together. Um, but my belief is that if we follow Jesus into this idea, it's actually possible that people would come to our community or encounter your life and they would say something like, how can something so simple taste so deep? And I think we would know that we're on the right track. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, don't miss next week. I, won't, I don't want to tell you what, what mantra it is, but it'll be a good one, I promise. And uh, we'll debut uh, another uh, work of art to help us meditate on these big ideas. Uh, may you know who you are. May you know what you have, what gifts you've been given, what strengths you bring to the world. May you know what you are here for, and may the world discover something so deep in the simple beauty of your life and in what God builds in this church. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.